Aloha, and welcome to SUP FM, the podcast for stand-up paddleboarders everywhere. So with no further ado, let's get out on the water and on with the show. Here are your hosts, Nick and Simon. Good morning from a bright and sunny Portugal. It's Nick Robinson here, and we're really excited to get going with another season of stand-up paddle interviews. So we've got quite a few lined up because we've had a, had a bit of a break. And on that break, I paddled across the Algarve, another 160-kilometer trip like I did back in 2015 um, with Spike Reed and Mauro Engler, which we actually talk about in uh, one of the previous episodes. I think it was number three. And um, I went with a, with a couple of mates, and um, apparently it's the, only the second time that it's been done. So we did it once in 2015 and now again in 2020. And we're looking forward to, to try and find other people who are going to do it. I just really want people to do this trip because it was such an amazing trip. And we'll hopefully try and get the guys onto a podcast to explain the actual trip and the preparation, how we did it. And one of our goals here at Stand Up Paddle FM or SUP FM is to try and inspire you to do more with your paddleboard. You know, 70% of you guys out there are going out and having a leisurely paddle and enjoying it and then, you know, you know, messing around on the beach and stuff, maybe on a river, maybe on a lake, which is great. And that's wonderful. And it's, you know, good exercise. But once you get to the next level where you start to do like, you know, maybe five kilometers or five miles and then you go in there and back and then you can start thinking about maybe taking a bit of kit on board and go and spend the night somewhere. So you paddle out to a little island or something and sleep the night and then come back and then and then the next step is to do a full multi-day trip so there's so much more and you know obviously you can do downwinding you can do all kinds of crazy things and, and we want to introduce you to all those types of stand-up paddle and uh and obviously racing was a lot of the focus of the content online is based around racing and, and our amazing athletes right at the top of their game on the app world tour um so if you want to find out more about the app world tour just check out our interview with uh with mr boxford who is the CEO of the APP World Tour. Obviously, this year, that's been a little bit um, delayed due to COVID, but next year, they'll be back and firing. And you can see some races are starting up now. A lot of virtual races happened over COVID. So there is no excuse to get on the water and start racing or to start paddling more. Anyway, well, this is not a, a rev session. We're just trying to inspire you. You don't have to do it. It's wonderful. But um, yeah, we've got quite a few amazing episodes lined up ready for us. So... Every week, we'll be coming back at you with some more exciting people. Simon, how excited are you about season three? Yes, I am really excited about season three. We've got some great guests, and the gap between seasons isn't as massive as the one between uh, one and two. It took us five years, I think, to uh, launch our second season, but they're coming thick and fast now. Yeah, it sure did take us a long time to get season two together. But um, now, yeah, season three is on its way. It's going well. And we're kicking off season three with an interview with the RNLI, which is basically the US Coast Guard for the United Kingdom. RNLI stands for the Royal Navy Lifeboat Institution. And we dig deep into the history of, of the institution, etc. But the reason we got the RNLI on was because we were, both of us were looking at lockdown and then the resurgence after lockdown of people getting back onto the water and watching how people just yearned for nature and just took up stand-up paddleboarding with a passion. All the stand-up paddleboards were sold out, etc. as you've heard, no doubt, on this podcast and many others. What we were concerned about is the fact that a lot of new paddleboarders, which is great, and we welcome you to the sport, it's wonderful to have you, is that a lot of people 
people are not quite sure of what to do regarding the conditions and the winds, and, and we wanted to keep people safe. So during lockdown or just a bit after, what Simon and I have been doing on this break as well is building a SUP safety course. It's basically a water safety course designed with stand-up paddle in mind, and it's really comprehensive. It's not that expensive. Um, and yeah, if you sign up to our newsletter, you'll be able to get a 10 bucks off. But um, we'll drop a link in there. Actually, you can go to forwards, uh, www.sapfm.show forward slash 10 and um, you'll be able to get that 10 buck off our 37 buck course. So the fact is that what we're trying to do here, put money aside, obviously we need to try and Simon and I need to eat and, and it's important that we try and make a little bit of money to keep this alive because you know we want SAPFM to succeed and to carry on. And it can't do that without a little bit of cash investment. This is the only way we can start to do it. But at the end of the day, we really want to help you guys out there to be safer as well. So it's a win-win situation. And we're investing in a lot of um, guys around the world who are helping us launch this product, like you know, the Stand Up Journal um, and uh, Paddle Logger, fantastic supporters of ours. We really thank you guys for helping us out. And a lot of our other guests we're reaching out to to try and spread the word of this course because we really want you to be safe out there. We really do. So bear that in mind when you listen to this podcast with the RNLI and we thank Nick Ayers for coming along and representing the RNLI. Without further ado, Nick Ayers. Mr. Nick Ayers, thank you so much for joining us from the RNLI. Um, Hi, Nick. It's great to have you. Thanks for having us on. Thank you. Yeah, it's a pleasure. I mean, as just we were just chatting a little bit earlier and how we feel here at SUPFM how important it is to address the issue of, of SUP safety and water safety because of all the mm. new paddlers surging into the waters. So obviously you guys share that sentiment, right? Definitely. Yeah, we've, we've seen a huge increase um, this summer. You know, stand-up paddleboarding, kayaking, it's all just taken to the next level. Um, I don't even think you can buy one online. I think they're all sold out um, here in the UK. Um, it's that social distance activity, isn't it, that everyone's trying to find? And and sup, it had been the the fastest growing aquatic sport, and this is just accelerated being in this uh, pandemic. Yeah, it's phenomenal. I mean, and not just the UK either. I mean, we interviewed guys yeah. from Hawaii and from Australia, and it's just they all sold out as well. So it'll be interesting to see how long this surge lasts. But yeah, um, yeah, it will be. So where are you based, and uh, and did you grow up there? So I'm based on the east coast of England, um, in a town called Alton Broad and it's um, most people know Norwich Norwich Football Club and it's basically just straight out onto the coast from there um, it's the most easterly point of Britain um, so we're right by on, by the water in the North Sea um, and I outlook onto the southern broad so the the Suffolk and Norfolk broads so inland water um, and I'm right at the river mouth that comes out of Lowestoft mm-hmm. so, so you've got I'm lots pretty, of water really to lucky. play with there yeah, I'm pretty lucky. I've got um, good uh, a good garage downstairs full of, uh, yeah, the trailer's racked full of boards and crafts and I could be on the water within sort of five minutes on inland and then out of the coast within within 10. So yeah, I'm, I'm pretty uh, pretty lucky and to, to be this close and have everything so um, of ease, you know, not much sort of transportation to and from. Yeah, I'm, I'm super jealous because it takes me 25 minutes to get on, on the water here where i am yeah yeah it's um it's pretty nice especially in the colder winter months like training in uh, november december january well pretty much most of the time in the uk <laughs> um you could be uh, bored on the trailer straight upstairs upstairs in a hot shower so yeah it's um it's pretty ideal um my family sort of grew up here um uh, we moved around quite a lot my my dad is a 
professional swimming coach. Um, so he was following his coaching path. And like most sort of coaching professions, you know, 10 years is kind of your, your sort of limit and then you move on to the next place. So we sort of went around the country. I say around the country, we were sort of Hertfordshire, um, Sussex um, sort of way, but always coming back here or heading down to Cornwall on sort of family trips and, and Devon for, for this odd surf trip with my dad. So, um, yeah, always sort of been exposed to this area um, and then down in Sussex as well. And then obviously through your, your father's swimming, there was a logical link to, to water and water Definitely. sports, right? <laughs> yeah. yeah. I think, I think <laughs> I could was he like throwing you in the water walk. at a young age? Yeah, yeah. yeah I'd probably swim before I could walk. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Mum and dad used to own a swimming school. Um, so it's pretty much on the agenda right from, from day one. Um, get in the water, get involved and, and learn how to have fun in the water, you know, and then um, gradually expose myself to the water in the ocean and, and the sea. Um, and dad, dad always followed like a life-saving background anyway. So um, he was keen to sort of make me and my brother sort of go through um, the life-saving club at Perrinporth. You know, they used to run like a summer cadet program. So get, getting that kind of safety knowledge on board, because um, at the time we were living in Hertfordshire, so you know, landlocked county, inland county. So we're pretty thankful for for our parents to um, educate us about the water and how to respect it and knowing what to do. Mm-hmm. And where is Perrinport? Is that uh, a good way? It's um, sort of north, Cor- north Cornwall, um, north northwest, well, southwest of England, um, on the north coast of Cornwall. Big surf beach and um, yeah, pretty pretty treacherous spot actually oh really so it wasn't all good times as a as a kid going on wonderful holidays and, and things it was it was hard work was it um in terms of the surf yeah i guess my mum and dad didn't hold back <laughs> but yeah it was um <laughs> it wasn't kind of like your bucket and spades spanish holiday trip to the med or anything like that it was um we're going to cornwall for two weeks rain or shine we are going to the beach kind of kind of mentality and and surf and and yeah live on the beach for the for the 14 days or so um and then that it was sounds back to, awesome yeah it was pretty good pretty good pretty <laughs> yeah. good um so, good two weeks. so where did you start off with? i mean did you um because you were swimming yeah did you go through the life-saving route and, and um, proceed to like body surfing and then and then paddleboarding so, or like on your knees yeah it was it was mostly swimming um because we were living in hertfordshire for for a good sort of 10 12 years um it was through swimming clubs and then when we moved to suffer uh, to to sussex um, I was then sort of exposed to open water swimming and, and following that competitive route um, of open water swimming, which then that sort of side path me on to lifesaving through, through beach lifeguarding. Um, and then when I got into beach lifeguarding, that's probably when I found paddleboarding, stand-up paddleboarding and, and sort of all the other types of craft that you can get on um, in, in the sea and in the surf and in the water. We here at SubFM love to dwell on that moment when you first placed your feet in a stand-up board. Can you remember the time? I can, yeah. And uh, like many people, it's it's sort of like a love-hate relationship, you know, just falling off all the time. And I just remember my friend sort of saying, you know, you, you need to you need to learn this. You need to get used to it because everyone's going to be doing it. And um, yeah, I, I remember my first time surfing, uh, stand-up surfing, and then uh, later on being exposed to stand-up paddleboarding um, and getting on a race board and falling off and spending endless time trying to trying to keep keep going and getting back on your feet again. Yeah. So what would your advice be for first-time paddleboarders? 
Uh, get the right instruction right from the start. You know, make sure you're enjoying it, of course, but you need to learn um, what to do when you're in trouble, what to do when you fall off. You know, a, a lot of the time, you know, we, when you go down to a, a school, a surf school or, or a stand-up paddleboard school, you know, you'd be wearing a buoyancy aid, leash, um, and just getting on and off the board is is quite a task, you know, and especially if you're not um, from a sort of a water-based I guess background you, you just need to know how to sort of remain calm and and push yourself up onto the board because it can be can be quite tough you know especially when you've got a paddle in your hand and knowing which to let go or hold on to or um you know figuring out which way the wind's going and, and the the conditions and, and things like that so get the right tuition um and don't be afraid to sort of spend the time um sort of baby steps you know absolutely yeah and then the right board you know a nice wide board for people to start off because like you mentioned starting on a race board i mean that's always tricky yeah exactly <laughs> but, i was um, sort of thrown into yeah. it from friends really yeah i mean i remember my first time paddleboarding i absolutely hated it and mm, um, yeah because it's because i was out in a windy environment with no wetsuit and the water was cold and i was just too scared to fall off yeah and i didn't fall uh, off but but still yeah. totally the same i think because i was surfing as well at the time and paddleboarding was then coming in and it was kind of like that um mentality from surfers so yeah i was trying to do it secretly at the time <laughs> yeah. um from my surfing friends and and that uh, but yeah getting frustrated about getting up and i think later on when i was discovering that you know wider boards and actually it's a lot nicer when it's it's calm you know idyllic conditions sunny hardly any wind you know that's that's when it's the, the real enjoyment comes out beautiful time so how did you start your relationship with the rnli um so i started my relationship with the rnli uh through the lifeguard service so they the rnli runs a seasonal um beach lifeguard service um that's that's run it's run by the rnli but uh the the councils or the landowners will will ask the rnli to provide a lifeguard service it's done on a risk sort of basis really um my relationship relationship started off with um, the seasonal lifeguard service in Norfolk. Um, at the time, I was a, a paid council beach lifeguard in Suffolk, um, and we, me and my friend, sort of heard the rumours that ah, oh, the RNI are sort of working with the council and sort of coming up with a a plan and negotiating. So before that was sort of agreed, we were like, well, maybe we should just go up the coast and and start our sort of RNI journey, if you like, and and sort of be a casual beach lifeguard at a place called Goulston in Norfolk um, and we, we did a couple of shifts with them that summer that first summer and then within the next year the RNI were, were sort of knocking on the door again to Suffolk to uh, the council so it's kind of um, yeah it started off by just volunteering I think I started off by volunteering as a lifeguard and then within a few weeks they took me on as a paid lifeguard for a couple of days a week in between my other shifts with the council. Um, and then the, the following year, um, I think me and my friend worked pretty much full-time with the RNLI lifeguard service. So from March, uh, yeah, you, you start your training. So March all the way through to, to sort of September um, and then doing the odd day off um, here and there with the council. Um, so yeah, that's that's pretty much my RNLI journey. That was probably back in 2009 um, when I thought it was, sort of started that off. Mm -hmm. Um, and obviously, for people who don't know out there, the RNLI mm. is the you know, United Kingdom's version of the U.S. Coast Guard or the NSRI in South Africa, 
with its mm. full name being Royal National Lifeboat Institution. So could you explain a little bit about the type of organization it is and what its mission is? Yeah, so um, it first uh, was founded in 1824 um, by a chap called Sir William Hillary. Um, and it was, it was uh, first initially started as the National Institute of the Preservation of Life from Shipwreck. And it was... Um, the organization was started off by, you know, rescuing people in need. Uh, he realized that there were, wasn't any kind of um, joined up rescue service. Um, and there were lots of, you know, fatalities out on the coast. And, and he wanted to do something about it. Um, so that's when it sort of started. Um, the RNLI sort of firstly, you know, he, he came up with, with the plan, the, the, the mission, the values, um, quite early on and it was to share um water safety drowning prevention initiatives and really sort of forward thinking you know um we still stick by them today you know a lot of our work is done behind the scenes to educate people before they even arrive at the coast um our international team as well you know that was set out when um sir william hillary started up the rnli you know a lot of the work he wanted to do was share the things that we're doing in the uk to to not so fortunate countries you know that has a have a, a drowning problem i guess across the colonies around the world like australia yeah and Africa. around the world like um parts of africa uh, bangladesh thailand and 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 it's um and it's still going you know we've, we still have a very good international team going to those those countries developing initiatives um and then it was only in um the early sort of 2000s that the RNLI sort of expanded its work out to the the lifeguard service um, and, and offered a paid professional beach lifeguard um, service to for councils, for landowners that weren't providing a, a sort of a sufficient um, supervision at those beaches. It's a, it's an institution that is run by volunteers, basically. Um, you know, we, we have a huge amount of volunteers in the institution. Um, we have paid staff as well. Um, to, to to run the organization um the organization split into regions um so I, I work in the north and east region um covering the lifeboat stations and the and the lifeguard services in the in that that patch and we have about okay so you're a regional water safety lead right is that that's it full-time yeah. job yeah. yeah um and and there's loads of different arms of the RNLI, you know through fundraising um so we rely rely on donations we don't get uh, direct government support um, in terms of money. Um, so the lifeboats are, you know, our own. We build them our own. Um, that's right for the, the part of the coast that we we need um, from uh, voluntary donations. Um, our lifeguard service is slightly different, you know, or it's it's partly funded by the uh, local authority or the landowner. A lot of the work that the RNLI has done is through generous donations, wills, grants. Would that ever change? I mean, because obviously the the royals um, have quite an invested interest in in the organisation. But um, will the government ever change and start funding? Uh, who knows? I, I I don't think. Yeah, who knows? To be honest, um, we we're really proud of what we do. We're really proud of our supporters, our volunteers, the ethos. Um, so I wouldn't think that that would change. The lifeguard service, like I say, is is something that's um, that's always in development in terms of the way that we get our money to provide the training, the equipment. You know, that's a that's a service on behalf of the council. So we are we are getting money in that way from those 
from that side of the institution. And um, just the scale of it, I mean, I just saw on Wikipedia that there's 238 lifeboat stations mm. operating about 444 lifeboats. Is that about right? Yeah, that's that's about right. Yeah, yeah. Done your research. Yeah, we, um, we've got a, a huge, um, huge fleet of lifeboats. And like I said, we it depends on what part of the coast they're on. Um, you know, the topography, the the um, beach setup or the harbour setup, uh, how far they need to go, um, the class in terms of what they'd normally be pulling back into the station um, or into the harbour. Um, you know, we have a rescue hovercraft at some of the beaches and some of the, the locations around the, the UK that have, you know, um, mud flats or soft sand or really shallow water. Um, we have inshore rescue boats, um, you know, particularly really quick and, and nimble around those surf surf sort of beaches and, and sort of um, rocky locations. But then we also decline, uh, um, explored uh, an E-class lifeboat that operates on the River Thames, so a jet boat engine. And that was our first sort of jet boat um, engine uh, class of a lifeboat that we, we designed. And, and that is on the, the London River Thames. Sounds very James Bondish. Yeah, it's pretty pretty groovy. Um, it can it can turn on a sixpence. It's you know it's, it can reach real high speeds. Um, but the latest one that we're really proud of is the Shannon um, lifeboat class. Um, that's using the same sort of jet propelled um, engine. Um, it's agile, um, renewable in all weathers, self writing, um, and it's it's one of the it can reach up to 25 knots um so it's it's a real efficient way of uh, life saving but in addition to those 238 lifeboat stations more or less how many beaches do you patrol with the lifeguard with a lifeguard saving organization so so on a normal um summer we patrol over 250 beaches um nationally um currently due to the covid uh, 19 pandemic we're at 177 um, beaches throughout the UK and Ireland. Um, and that was just reduced uh, this year in March, um, like I say, due to the pandemic. And does the bathing, bathing season change over the years or is it a set thing every single year, set date? We review it on a year-by-year um, -year basis, really. Um, it's it's down to the landowner, down to the local authority or, or the private landowner um, decision. We put in our recommendations. Um, if we see different trends, um, we line up with sort of the Easter holidays or major bank holidays. Um, so we know that those those sort of weekends are covered um, if possible. Um, some areas run a weekend service up to sort of Whitson weekend, bank holiday. Um, some locations will provide a Easter cover service and a late October service. Um, and we have one full-time, all-year-round lifeguard, uh, lifeguarded beach. Because it, yeah, it varies quite a lot in Portugal as well, so that's, that, that explains why. Could you share with us some statistics about recent rescues and, and try and relate that to pre-lockdown figures, maybe with the year before or the year before that? Um, yeah, I mean, to be honest, we are we're sort of now at that stage where we're now looking at our trends for the summer to see what we're um, what we're what we've been going out to mostly, um, but. In terms of this summer, like before we, we said, we've seen a huge increase in those stand-up paddleboard rescues and incidents, um, people being cut off by the tide, um, so your everyday sort of walkers. Um, so much more in terms of um, um, sort of localized incidents, where I say localized, you know, walking, swimming, stand-up paddleboarding, 
um, kayaking and people using inflatables, which we kind of predicted. Um, you know, if you sort of say what's easy, easily accessible, people can, you know, order it on Amazon or wherever and get it by the next day um, and they can go out on the water and access access their spot. Whereas normally we'd see a lot more sort of fishing activity or people using boats, jet skis. That would be our sort of normal summer kind of call outs. And is there any way to get a hold of the manufacturers who, and say by law that, the, the um, you, you know, you need to dish out this RNLI messaging or anything? Do you understand what I'm saying? At the point of sale, then people can get taught water safety. Yeah, we're, we're doing a lot of work this summer, especially at Sparked. Um, we need to do more. And through our partners, um, so the RNLI sit on the National Water Safety Forum. Um, so it's sort of uh, recommended by the World Health Organization that each country has a drowning prevention plan uh, strategy for their individual count, uh, countries. Um and they should bring in all of those life-saving organizations, so like the Coast Guard, the RNLI, uh, Royal Life-Saving Society, all those other organizations that do something to help prevent drowning. Um, and we're working really closely with the National Water Safety Forum to come up with different ways that we can um, put recommendations in place for those manufacturers. Uh, it could just be in the instructions, actually on the on the device, whether it's an inflatable or a stand-up paddleboard, um, but then locally, what we're doing is we're rolling out a local ambassador scheme. So we're trying to encourage um, local businesses, waterside venues to share our messaging. Bit by bit, we can really sort of educate the people actually selling these, the, the inflatables or boogie boards or stand-up paddle boards by, you know, delivering a life-saving message by, you know, it could be something really simple by saying, if you're going down to the lifeguarded beach and you see the orange windsock flying, don't take it out on the inflatable. Or if you do, attach it to a piece of rope attach it to someone on land and hold on at all times you know um some really sort of simple life-saving messaging so we're doing we're doing quite a lot of work behind the scenes but then it also at the other end um when the consumer's there buying that piece of product and are, and are, are the um are the companies involved in selling these things are they cooperating and and Doing yeah, there's a big, big one the um the other week. Uh, John Lewis actually uh, changed the way that they um sort of advertise their inflatables, any kind of inflatable. Um, you know, putting in simple messaging saying, you know, do not use this in open water. It's gone completely on the other side of not even displaying anything to now saying, you know, do not use this on in open water situations. So things are. But sorry, are happening. Nick, when you say inflatables, you mean inflatable stand-up paddle boards, or are you just talking about... No, I'm sorry, yeah, I should be more specific. Um, inflatables is in, you know, like your inflatable rings or inflatable boats or unicorns for the sense, um, you know, those ones that are not designed for open water situations. And how could we forget a pink flamingo, of course? Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> My favourite. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> everyone's got to have one of those yeah. but um yeah obviously it's a, it's a massive worry and could you share some stories about about rescuing paddlers yeah uh, rescuing stand-up paddle waters yes in particular i would great. say there's there's been a few i mean when i was working on the beach um the, there's been the uh the odd rescue where it's been quite um quite amusing but then also quite scary you know near near um near to getting really serious and a lot of the situations are that they they don't actually know how to paddle um the stand-up paddleboard or um knowing how to get back onto the paddleboard itself um 
and it's really quite scary because you know they put themselves in this situation um they could get onto it on a pontoon nice and easily um fall off and not even have a scooby-doo how to get back on um there's been one recently that's been quite tragic and it's something that the way that we're looking at our um our approach to our safety messaging so at the online we always say you know um before you go out make sure you look at the tides um or if you haven't even done it before get get professional help before you even go out on the water always wear your leash and hold on to your board if you get into trouble so that first one always wear your leash um we're just working with our our governing bodies so like british canoe union um uh, isa and um and the British uh, B Super, um, the way that we sort of message that um, in the sea and in the open water, you know, wearing your leash is fine. But when you go onto a river situation where that leash can become a bit more of a hazard, um, if you're wearing just an ankle leash and the board goes one way, you go the other side of a pontoon or a boat, um, you then end up becoming trapped, especially if the water's going in the, the direction that you're moving. So we're just working at the specifics of, you know, if you're wearing a leash, you know, recommend to wear a leash, um, a waist leash, so you can easily grab hold of it and release it um, than, than your ankle strap. It's also a worry in, in tidal areas, isn't it, in coastal yeah. wetlands where you have moored boats and yeah. the tide is streaking up and down. Yeah. I remember that something happened in Sydney Harbour a few years ago. A young mm. girl died, sadly. Uh, exactly the same scenario. Her board was went one side and she was the other mm. side because it, it feels... I mean, we have a, a coastal wetland here where I used to train people in Faro, um, in Portugal. And so many, you know, we're just paddling innocently past these moored boats. And my mind is on full alert when we're going past those because, you've got, you know, you've got six trainees there and they have no idea what could go wrong. No, that's that's the thing. It's, it's um, trying to get that message across that even really simple stuff, Nick, like saying, you know, the open water, you know, the water is always moving. You know, it's it's not like a swimming pool where it's just you know the depth you know the sides it's it's the top level is moving depending on if there's swimmers and whatnot but open water you've got wind you've got tide you've got undercurrents and then if you put a boat in there you've got the draft you know um so you've got lots of different bodies of water and and sort of movements in that so we're just trying to get the most simple messaging out there and and i think this summer's really proved it you know the way that we've we've managed to get those safety messages across on loads of different platforms um you could even say that we're you know we're reaching a, a new audience a new visitor um and that's what we're trying to trying to capture but yeah going back to the leash you know we had a fatality the other week um unfortunately um and it, and it was that same sort of scenario where, you know, the board goes one way, the, the casualty goes the other way um, in those tidal locations. So, yeah, we just need to be really clear on what types of leash we recommend in that different types of water. Yeah, waste, uh, quick release mechanisms. And obviously, we can't really address it all in, in this podcast because it's, it's not re- relaxed. But, um, yeah, so we um, here at SubFM, we've created um, a water safety online course to address all this. And obviously, you have excellent articles on your website on rnly.org, right? Yes, that's it. Yep, yep. So can you talk us through that a little bit? Yeah, definitely. So um, some of the other messages that we we sort of always say, um, like in most sort of activity, we always say carry a means of calling for help. So on your person, so whether that's a VHF radio, very high frequency radio, um, that you can contact the Coast Guard, the emergency services on. 
or on a fully charged mobile phone. Um, if you're taking you know, the latter, the mobile phone, putting it inside a waterproof pouch, wearing it on your body, um, on your person and not on the craft or in the craft or on top of the craft, um, easily accessible. So slipped inside a, a buoyancy aid um, or into your wetsuit. Um, and you can download various apps. There's lots of apps out there, like you know Paddle Logger. There's Safe Tracks app that we do a lot of work with, um, with the RYA, so the Royal Yacht Association, Yachting Association. Um, and Safe Tracks is a really fantastic app, especially if you're in the UK. It's free to download. Um, you enter your details, your emergency contact details. You can do a, a it's called a sail plan. Um, so you just put your your location, your point-to-point location or you know your your route um and how long it would normally take you um and if your your plan is over time um it will make a contact to your your known emergency contact and the text will come up saying have you heard from nick um is he back on land uh if that emergency contact doesn't get back to the coast guard to say yes um it's he's fine then the coast guard will will make that call um they'll know your last known position if your phone has died or they'll pick you up straight away um and the rnli if you're out on the coast uh will then or the other independent lifeboats or the lifeguards will be able to pinpoint your exact location so it really sort of takes that search out of the search and rescue um of the situations and then there's a few other things, you know, if you are going um, into the water, always tell someone else back on dry land. Um, they can raise the alarm if you're overdue. Always check the weather forecast and tide times, um, the relevant information to where you're going. Um, always wear a pl- personal flotation device. Um, so there's lots out there, you know, buoyancy aids or uh, waist belts, uh, life jackets, um, and and always try and paddle with someone else. That's what we always say. You know, it's much more enjoyable paddling with someone else. You know, we we all know that we need some personal space, but in the water, open water, you especially if you're new to the sport, um, just go with someone else. You know, go with a friend. Mm-hmm. Excellent. Well, that's all excellent advice, so, Nick. Um, thank you very much for for coming on to Sub FM and and providing an overview of what the RNLI does and, and how to keep much safer out there in the water. I hope it, hope it helps. Yeah. No, th- thanks for your time, Nick. I really appreciate it. Oh, it's a pleasure. And uh, how can people donate to the RNLI, by, by the way? Um, so you can jump onto the website, um, rnli.org, um, and there's, there's lots of different ways that you can do it. There's a big sort of orange button at the top that says Donate Now, um, and you can donate as much or as little as you want. Um, you can sign up to be a, a member. You can sign up to be an ambassador. Um, you can make monthly donations. Um, you can even name, put your name on a lifeboat if you like. So there's lots of different ways that there's uh, to, to make a, a donation. Thank you so much. And, and here's to a safer re- uh, winter season. I hope it all, yes. all goes well. Yeah, hopefully. Thank you. Cheers, Nick. Thank you for listening to SUP FM, the number one podcast for stand-up paddlers wherever you are. If you like what you've heard, please leave us a review on iTunes. Until then, we'll see you on the water.